Welcome to another episode of On the Line, a podcast produced by the BC Labour Heritage Centre, designed to shine a light on the rich labour heritage of British Columbia. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. This is Asian Heritage Month. Last month was Sikh Heritage Month. Both groups are justly celebrated for their contributions to the fabric of British Columbia. At the same time, they also suffered many years of exploitation and discrimination, much of it in the workplace. For many reasons, including the racist policies of many unions, they were very hard to organize. But one union, the International Woodworkers of America, met the challenge head-on. This is the story of three remarkable Asian-Canadian organizers, hired specifically by the IWA to break down racial barriers and bring woodworkers of all races into what was then BC's biggest union. One day I thought I'd have some fun and see how hooking chokers was done. Since Duncan Logan had begun, I tackled a boss that night. He says, my chokerman's bit the dust His head is bashed in and his legs are bust And though with luck he'll live I trust Of chokers he hates the sight We hit the river the very next week That Duncan country looked awfully bleak Of that I will not even speak It's just a great big bog The mosquitoes are huge and so are the fleas We only have rotten cedar for trees And every step it's mud to the knees And that's where I learned how to log They hauled me from bed at about midnight By the end of the Dirty Thirties, the IWA had barely anything to show for their tenacious organizing drives in BC's lucrative forest industry. With governments, legal authorities and the law Stacked in favor of determined anti-union employers, the union could not win. Nor did it help that many forest industry workers were employed in remote, far-flung logging camps. Euclid 
hired 14 loggers and we hired a mantha saw. We hired a greenhorn cook and he ran the hotcakes raw. We had blankets for the travel and biscuits for the chore. We were in search of bitchbacks way up the Euclidon. We had blankets for the travel and biscuits for the chore. We were in search of bitchbacks way up the Euclidon. Another difficulty was the diversity of the workforce. Racism had prevailed in B.C. since the first arrival of Chinese workers in the 1880s, and the labor movement was part of it. Attitudes were fueled by unscrupulous employers who hired ethnic Chinese to work for low wages and used them as strike breakers. Members of the Asiatic Exclusion League, which included the Vancouver Trades and Labor Council, were among those responsible for the notorious riot against Vancouver's Chinatown and Japantown in the fall of 1907. Demands for Asian exclusion continued in the B.C. labor movement for a long time. That demand included workers from South Asia. Although often referred to as Hindus, the vast majority were Sikhs from the Punjab area of India. The forest industry in particular had large numbers of Asian Canadian workers. Sawmills and logging companies took advantage of actual laws that allowed employers to pay them less than white workers doing the same jobs. They used ethnic labor contractors to supply them with low-paid Chinese, Japanese, and South Asian workers. In return for finding them jobs, the contractors took a slice of their pay. This notorious system was known as the Taiyi. Even mill owners who were South Asian themselves took advantage of the law to pay their Asian workers less than non-Asian. In the 1920s, Mayo Singh and Kapoor Sidhu established a racially diverse community on Vancouver Island known as Paldi. The town was built around their large sawmill that employed Sikhs, Japanese, Chinese, and whites. In many ways, Paldi stood as a model of harmonious race relations. But a closer look showed that the owners were still typical bosses. In 1936, the IWA had tried, unsuccessfully, to organize the mills at Paldi and nearby Hillcrest, citing them as two of the worst wage discriminators in the province. So race remained a huge obstacle to worker unity. But the IWA, spearheaded by its leaders Harold Pritchett and Nigel Morgan, both members of the Communist Party, had never embraced Asian exclusion. They believed in organizing Asian workers, not keeping them out. This was the same progressive policy advocated in the past by other socialist organizations, most notably the industrial workers of the world and the one big union movement. As union organizing finally opened up during and after World War II, the IWA concluded that the best way to break down racial hurdles in BC sawmills was to hire Asian-Canadian organizers. It was a groundbreaking decision. Roy Ma, later a prominent leader in Vancouver's Chinatown, was hired to organize Chinese-Canadian lumber workers. As part of his job, he put out the first Cantonese Union newspaper in North America. Ma had signed on after volunteering to fight for a country that denied him the vote. All told, he brought an estimated 2,500 Chinese Canadians into the IWA. Roy Ma talked about his experiences some years ago with well-known chronicler Paul Yi. 
Yeah, I was a district representative for all of BC, except the interior. Well, I edited the paper for them in Chinese, and then also, uh, I also was organizing. I go around to the camps and try to organize them, because they were working at 40 cents an hour, and some of them got as, less, uh, as little as 25 cents. Whereas the white were getting um, 60, 75 cents, you see, there was quite a spread in the uh, wage differential. So my pitch to them was that, no, equal work for equal pay. So I said, if you join the union, this is what we're fighting for. So this is where we can help you. Did, ma did many Chinese join? I, I say I got 80% of them. Good. They were hired by Chinese contractors, and they were contracted. They don't. They were contracted. And, well, uh, wasn't too friendly towards me. I, I remember, yeah. But uh, that's understandable. See, because the uh, labor contractor hired them, they get a cut, you know, off their wages, and you know, I don't know. Maybe uh, I don't know what the, the firm paid the contractor even. Maybe the you know, but, but I know that that's that's the take home pay. Was the IWA one of the first unions to try and organize amongst the Chinese? Yes. Why, why were they so interested? I mean, organized labor for a long time earlier had been very much opposed to the Chinese. You know, they said they're lower wages and unfair competition and... and yeah, but then 20% is a sizable chunk of the working force. And if you can't, you can't ignore them or leave them out, you see. Because uh, if you leave them out, then they will always be working under, under you know, under sell the labor to the, uh, to the, uh, to the boss. So they figured it'd be better to pull them in than to, to sort of right. leave them as enemies. It's just a matter of convincing them. Right. A lot of them were skeptics. You know, they, uh, they were hesitant and they don't know, uh, you know, they were, some of them were afraid that the boss uh, might find out and fire them, you see. So, uh, you know, they were uh, so accustomed for years, they've been, uh, you know, sort of uh, treated as doormat, you know. They don't know the difference anyway, because, uh, you know, that's their life. The way of life was so long. Then you say, gee, they were, they were so accustomed to receiving 40 cents, you suddenly offer them about 85, that's double, you know. In those days, that's equivalent to, say, jump, jump, $500 to 1000 you know. I think the, it was reality, even. We showed them. We showed them, you see. We showed them the contract after the first sign, and look at, see. But there were, there were some ho-outs, a few ho-outs, as I say, I couldn't get them all, you know, there were 80 90 percent, some of them, you know. I don't think it's so much for religious reasons as for, you know, Chinese uh, penny-pinching, eh? you know, <laughs> the skin flints. They hang on, you know, because at that time it was only dollar fifty a month, and my union deal, they wouldn't join, because they were only working for about 30 or 40 dollars a month. I suppose it's only human nature, you know, you get all kinds of people, you see. But I got the most of them, see, the bulk of them. They were very friendly towards me, they treated me nice, uh, you know, I, whenever I go into a camp, oh, they treated me as guests, special guests, invited me to dinner, and, you know, joined them for dinner, everything. How did the white workers feel about, you know, the Chinese joining the union? They want them to join. They, want they, they, they don't want the, the, them to undercut their labor, you see. Smart man. Yeah. What we did, not just organizing, not just raise their benefit. I used to, you know, uh, I used to be uh, like a one-man uh, success. I used to write letters for them, uh, handle their family problems, and you know, 
interpret for them, take them down to immigration or take them, you know. Did all of these perform for them for free, for all for their one dollar and a half a month? See, that's a part of the service, part of the inducement. I get them to join you. Problems, you have trouble, I'll look after it for you. I've worked in the cities, I've worked in the mines, I've sat in jails a couple of times. If again I hooked chokers, I've made up my mind to put one right around my head. For setting chokers, you get no relief, you only have bruises and all kinds of grief. So here is my thesis and you'll find it brief. I think I would rather be dead. Darshan Singh Sangha was a dynamic young Sikh, recently arrived in Victoria who found work in the city's sawmills in the late 1930s. The exploitation and discrimination he found on the job turned him into a communist. A few years later, Nigel Morgan asked Darshan to take on the task of organizing the large number of South Asian sawmill workers on Vancouver Island. Darshan accepted. In a later interview in Punjabi with SFU professor Hari Sharma, Darshan spoke at length about how his societal awareness had been developed at university and working in sawmills. So, which year did you come to the first year? 37. 37. How many he was more than ready for the challenge. Workers who had resisted previous IWA organizing efforts responded to his persuasive pamphlets and speeches in their own Punjabi language. Soon, they were flocking to join the union. Darshan Singh Sangha stayed with the union for the rest of his time in Canada. He became a district trustee for the IWA, the first non-white to hold such a position in the union. Fundamental to the IWA's organizing drive was a vow to end wage discrimination against Asian workers. The message was spelled out by the union's ladies' auxiliary float in the Canada Day Parade in Duncan in 1945. The float displayed a large, bold banner proclaiming, Equal pay for equal work for all. The IWA also gave strong support to campaigns by Asian Canadians for the right to vote. When the Khalsa Diwan Society went to the BC Legislature in 1944 to lobby for the vote, IWA President Harold Prichette and Darshan Singh Sangha went with them. Both groups finally got the vote in 1948. After the war, wage discrimination against Asian workers that had been in place for so many years also came to an end along with the infamous Thai system of ethnic labor contractors. In later years, as racist immigration restrictions were lifted as well, thousands of South Asians came to BC. 
Many found work in the province's sawmills, but the IWA could not erase all the problems. Newcomers were usually assigned to back-breaking, lower-paid jobs on the green chain or unloading boxcars. Skilled jobs were reserved for others. In an interview with Co-op Radio in the 1970s, IWA activists Dilba Johal and Hirinder Bahil talked about the difficulties union organizers continued to have with newly arrived South Asian workers. Uh, first of all, there are hardly any unions in Punjab where m- most of the people come from, uh, most of the Indian workers. I think when people or the Indian workers get, get jobs here, they want, want to establish themselves. Uh, regardless of a union or a non-union mill they work at, I think the main problem comes that they, they don't know what the rights are under the union agreement. It's basically because of two problems. The first one is uh, the education, which is lacking on part of the union. Uh, secondly, because the language problems. problem is that uh, people uh, uh, come from India. Uh, they were not uh, organized in the union over there because most people from India come here. Uh, farmers. They, they were farmers in India and here uh, they don't understand very much uh, about the union beforehand. And uh, second one is that most people uh, come from India, they were uh, mostly office workers in the government uh, offices or some teachers or uh, they were not uh, in the labor force. I think that's the first uh, problem regardless you work in a union mill or a non-union mill. But I do feel that there are a lot more problems in, in non-union plants because there's no job security and uh, they can get rid of you any day they want and, uh, and the wages are a lot less. And it's to the extent that uh, East Indian workers are getting lower wages than the Anglo-Saxons. And East Indian workers are on uh, menial jobs while the, the whites or Canadians or Anglo-Saxons are on uh, machine jobs. And to some extent, it's true in, in a union mills also. I mean, there are a number of mills where East Indian workers are mainly on green chains or on other such jobs where it's just bulwark which is required of them. It's uh, either I think employers think that they cannot think or cannot do the machine job. You who live a life of leisure, you who live a life of ease, in your mansion in the country or your yacht upon the seas does your conscience ever picture on the tablet of your brain the sad thought of men in misery pulling lumber off the chain when the pond is full of timber the jack ladders running wild and the sawyer in his carriage has the bandsaw set and filed from the head rig to the trim saw through the planer moves the train of that endless pile of lumber out upon the long green chain the third asian canadian organizer hired by the iwa was joe miyazawa he found his way to the union in unfortunate circumstances having been removed from the bc coast by internment he wound up working at a sawmill in Kamloops with a number of other Japanese Canadians. Inspired by his father, who had been active in the Japanese camp and mill workers, 
Miyazawa led a successful drive to organize the mill. When the war ended, he signed on as an IWA organizer in the West Kootenays, where many Japanese Canadians had remained after internment had run its course. One of the first Japanese Canadians allowed to return to the West Coast in 1949, Miyazawa eventually became the Union's Associate Director of Research and a tireless advocate for human rights both at home and internationally. In an interview after leaving the IWA in 1965, Joe Miyazawa talked about his union organizing experiences. Yeah, I worked in the sawmills, and the only place we could go to work in the, in the employment in those days. I think you have to understand, though, that, uh, see, I went working for the union as a full-time organizer in 1946, after the big strike. And uh, following that, I traveled extensively all through the interior. I was on the road pretty all the time. And, of course, uh, people I associated with were all trade union people, or basically trade union people, so I, I was not in competition with anybody in a small business sense. And I really didn't feel any kind of, of uh, change uh, or discrimination or attitude, attitudinal change. Although, in some of the small towns in the interior, I, I, uh, I did sense a couple places where I had difficulty getting hotel room. But, Accommodation, but it was pretty subtle. One town, I can't recall where it was now, that I used to have trouble with, I, I, I fixed them. I used to get to town on the phone first and ask them if they had a room. They said, yes, let me give my name. But there was no other place to stay or otherwise I would not have stayed there. I think you primarily operate on the basis that if, that if you felt it, then you just avoided them. I didn't really have any any uh, that kind of problem in organizing workers because to me it didn't make any difference. Although my, my I was first uh, I was first uh, uh, went working for the union because of the great numbers of Japanese Canadians working in the in the mills and in the interior. But most those who moved off the coast that's the only place we go to work. So great numbers of them worked in and around uh, Greenwood, Midway, Grand Forks, Nelson, Spokane Valley, and the Kootenays. East Kootenays too, so I traveled all the way through from Crow's Nest Pass right over to Okanagan, where most of the Japanese had relocated. And so I, I organized uh, workers into the union. And IWA was, uh, was founded uh, before the war, but it never gained any impetus until about 1944. 44, 40, 44, uh, under the Wartime Measures Act, um, um, the rights of uh, association were, were passed by Privy Council. Previous to that, was very different. Then there was questions of certification, which came under federal jurisdiction at that time. And so this was all a new ballgame for everybody. Prompted the union to hire me. Oh, prompted the union to hire. Oh yeah, we figured that uh, that because of the war, there'd be uh, great suspicion on the part of anybody else going in trying to get people to sign up and pay their initiation fee. Were well, you a true believer in you? I am. Were you at that time? Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. Primarily because uh, I suppose some of it rubbed off off my dad, but uh, secondly, because uh, uh, you have to understand that the very very little was organized in British Columbia during the war mm -hmm. or before the war. And um, uh, it was very common in the large sawmills, uh, places like uh, Hammond Cedar or BC Forest Products, not Hammond Cedar. 
uh, and all the big mills that there was always a Japanese boss who signed his own checks to the workers and took a nickel a head cut off of everybody uh, for no reason except that he did the hiring and uh, this uh, commonly called Tai system in the, can in the canneries with the Chinese. And this was very common amongst Japanese. There were a lot of Japanese bosses, uh, not very well liked, who, uh, who in the Fraser Valley, uh, well known, uh, who uh, did the hiring and the firing. Did they, okay, what about the Chinese? Well, who hired the Chinese? Well, they, they, they had a Chinese boss, they oh, had an East Indian boss. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Very convenient for the employer. Uh, very convenient, and it, it was a, it was a street break off right off the top. Uh, he said, "Do I have ten people working? Uh, the hours are so much." Uh, then he paid his hours to the guy. He probably took a nickel head to say he looked after the bookkeeping. But uh, you know, this this led wide open to bribery because uh, uh, one well known one with uh, with uh, uh, Barry Farm in the Fraser Valley. Never did any work on his farm. All the guys who worked for him came on Sundays and at night and worked his farm, just to ensure that they kept the jobs. Yeah. So, um, and when Christmas came, you know, it was the bottle or keg of show you and this kind of business. So. But that was the times that everybody was quote accepted. I didn't know you have to accept these things, I suppose. I guess it's part of tradition. It was just you know. Well, I suppose it tradition in the sense that that uh, there was some language difficulty at the outset, but I questioned that and perpetuated the system. And those who were in it wanted to perpetuate it because it was to their advantage. Mm -hmm. and so um, uh, I got involved because uh, I wanted to ensure that uh, I got paid for the same labor as the guy next to me who was not black hair. There was some smatterings at that time of some people who moved to the interior trying to resurrect that structure. So, this didn't agree with me. And so I became very active working in the mill when I worked there. You know, then I worked, I assisted um, on my off times in the other mills in the area. You rarely hear them mentioned during Asian or Sikh Heritage Months, but Roy Ma, Joe Miyazawa, and Darshan Singh Sangha, along with the IWA which hired them, were pioneers in bringing ethnic Asian workers into the mainstream of the BC workforce. They helped end their long history of exploitation and wage discrimination. It's a contribution that should be much better known. A final note on Darshan Singh Sangha. In 1947, he decided to leave BC and the IWA to return to India to be part of his homeland's new independence. In his resignation letter to the Union, he wrote, One of the greatest achievements of the IWA was the uniting of all woodworkers, white, Indian, Chinese, Japanese, irrespective of race and color. After returning to India, he became known as Darshan Singh Canadian. Thanks to John Bartlett for permission to use the music in this podcast, the Greenhorn Song and Way Up the Euclata, from his 2008 album, The Young Man in Canada, and the Green Chain Song, performed by Rika Rubsat, from the album, 
Now it's called Princeton. The interview with Joe Miyazawa was conducted by the National Nikkei Museum and Heritage Center. It is archived as part of the Japanese-Canadian Oral History Collection at Simon Fraser University. The co-op radio clip was produced by the Bogue Foundation and donated to the BC Labour Heritage Centre on reel-to-reel tapes. Thanks, too, to the Labour Radio Podcast Network for featuring us among more than 70 podcasts and broadcasts focused on work and labour across North America. And finally, as always, thanks to the other members of the podcast team, Bailey Garden and Patricia Weir. I'm Rod Mickleborough. We'll see you next time on The Line.